You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast. Chuck, how was uh, how was last week, first of all? You were pretty busy writing articles every day. <laughs> yeah, that last week was great. You know, it's it's always fun when I have uh, a, a nice long break like that because I, I really – my most like productive writing comes right after a break like that. And actually, I, I lo- was looking at the content calendar this weekend – uh, for what's coming up this week. And I was going to ask you to clear me the morning slot uh, every oh, day awesome. except Friday. Yeah. Cause That's I, good. I just have like, I'm like on a tear right now cool. and yeah, I kind of, I have fun. I, I think when you, when you get time off, you get to focus a little bit. And I think focus is, is good for me. Well, and having a, a few weeks off from doing events has got to help in terms of <laughs> allowing you to actually have time to sit down and write things. Yeah. You know, when I'm when I'm traveling and when I'm out doing events, it it, it gives me a lot of ideas and a lot of um, you know insights into things. Uh, I, I I really back when I first started writing for Strong Towns uh, and and you know the the blog and everything that kind of turned into what we do now, it's amazing. I was saying some things that people wanted to hear that were new, but I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I knew so little, <laughs> you know. I learned so much from being out on the road and, and meeting people and seeing what other people are doing and getting ideas. Uh, the problem is that, yeah, it's just exhausting. And so you, you have all this kind of processing around in your brain, but you don't get time to deal with it. And then you come back to the office and not only are there 200 emails, uh, but then I've got, you know, <laughs> you 20 messages from me. Yeah. I was like, Hey, we've been waiting for you, uh, Mr. <laughs> Bottleneck to, uh, to deal with these things. So yeah, um, it's, uh, when you get, you know, two weeks with like no computer, no nothing, um, just like a, a, a scratch pad and some notes. Uh, I, I, I think like I could take all of January and just right now and it would be wonderful. Well, I'm sure all of our readers would appreciate that. They <laughs> well, love maybe. hearing from you. <laughs> I don't know. Today I'm waiting for the uh, the scorn to rain down on me, and it, it hasn't yet um, with today's post, but uh, yeah, we'll see. let's talk about that. Uh, Chuck's article for today is called A Utah Republican Might Have the Best Urban Transportation Plan, and it's about a proposed legislation called the Transportation Empowerment Act, uh, which was put out by Senator Mike Lee of Utah. And I'm curious how you found out about this in the first place. Well, I, I wrote about it a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and there's actually a, a, a piece there. And I was actually thinking about just rerunning that. But then I, I read it and I'm like, no, it doesn't have the right tone and the right context. And it, it you know, I'm, I'm really in this piece trying to build a, a bridge across this very wide partisan chasm, you know. If a Republican pose, repo, proposes something, it must be horrible. If a Democrat proposes something, it must be terrible. Um, I, I'm, I'm really trying to like, you know, bridge across that because last week I wrote three pieces about – or four pieces actually about the uh, federal transportation package ending with the big pot of money piece. And I, I think the, the thing that I've been struggling with is, okay, 
if if strong downs is not for the big pot of money approach, and that is a that is a quote from Ray LaHood who said on this podcast last year that you know what we need from a transportation standpoint more than anything is a big pot of money. If we just had yeah. a big pot of money, we could solve problems. So to me, like if if we're not for a big pot of money, which we're not, what are we actually for? And I, I, I'm not sure that I'm for the Transportation Empowerment Act, but I keep coming back to it as like to me, like a, a logical step of what we would do uh, if if we want to start making, you know, a, a transition. Basically, the act says this. Let's lower the gas tax or essentially get rid of the gas tax, except for the little bit that we would need to. Uh, maintain the interstate system. And then let's give all transportation funding and policy back to states. And, you know, I, I, I think if you are into uh, subsidiarity, if you are, which, which I am, if you're into federalism, you know, th- this is an idea that just on its face makes a lot of sense. I tried to point out that what goes on today in our transportation system is a lot of subsidy from, and I realize. This is a broad generalization, but a lot of subsidy from places that have voted blue to places that have voted red. But you have a a red state senator and a red state congressman who have proposed this legislation, essentially giving their states less money for transportation. If you're from Utah and this bill were to pass, uh, you could go to your state legislature then. You know, the gas tax would drop by 15 cents a gallon at the federal level. You could go to your state legislature, raise gas taxes by 15 cents, and you know the, no one at the pump would see anything different. But your state would get a lot less transportation money. Um, if you were from, say, New York uh, or California, and uh, this bill would have gone into place, uh, you could go to your state legislature and you know, replace that federal gas tax with a state gas tax. And you would have all kinds of more money. I mean, you know, you'd have like way more money. Uh, and so, you know, to me, this is one of those things where the the rhetoric of conservatives, which which I, you know, in in many ways uh, sympathetic to in some regards, uh, the rhetoric of conservatives is like let's make government smaller, let's shrink government, let's you know streamline government, let's get the government middleman out of the way. Um, but then the crazy rhetoric of the conservatives is so that we can build more roads. Yeah. And that's, that's actually what he said. And my point was, you know, you're going to have less money for building roads in Utah, but you're going to have way more money for doing the things that you want to do in a state like New York or California, uh, because you're not going to be subsidizing these crazy, not the interstates, but like the, the crazy frontage roads and side roads and, you know, all these other things that uh, the money goes for in a state like Utah. So at the end of the article, you said, what if instead as a way to generate a real bipartisan consensus in Congress, as well as across the country, we gave a decent percentage of that transition money directly to our major cities? Um, I mean, I think that's a good idea. I live in a city that would benefit from that money. But what about all the people in those rural areas who I'm sure will will comment on this and maybe argue with it? Like, I mean, are you basically just saying give all the money to cities? And what about all those rural rural areas I, I think or one even of the, smaller towns? I think that's fair. One of the pushbacks against the Transportation Empowerment Act when it came out was that, uh, you know, you're from from people who want – innovation 
and people with cities is that you're going to give this money to the DOTs and what the DOTs do at the state level, and this is very true, a disproportionate amount of the money that goes to state DOTs ends up in rural areas. I mean, it ends up on yeah. crazy stuff in the middle of nowhere that, that doesn't benefit anybody. I, you know, I live in a district that was represented by James Oberstar for many years, and, and he was the head of the House Transportation Committee. And you can go to like the remote parts of this district where there's you know 2,000 cars a day, and you've got four-lane divided highways. I mean, that could carry 50,000 cars. It, it's crazy. Um, you know, if you give the money right to states, you're going to get a lot of that kind of junk because that's the way their system is set up. Mm-hmm. To me, if you are a rural conservative, I think very much like Mike Lee's kind of propaganda suggests, you can cheer the fact that now power has been devolved to the state legislature. You can have more influence at the state legislature than at the U.S. Congress. And, you, you know, you're just like a cheerleader for smaller government. I think if you're an, an urban person, uh, the idea of giving some of this money uh, you know, you wouldn't give, you'd still give it during the tra- phase out period, there would be block grants to the states. But instead of just block grants to the states, give some of that block grant money to cities as well. Uh, to me, this is like a way for urban areas to be that catalyst for innovation that we need. I, I look at just in my state here in Minnesota and what Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, Duluth have done in terms of biking infrastructure, uh, street trees narrowing up streets, making neighborhoods more livable. The stuff that they've done has just been tremendous, and it's, it's great leadership for the rest of the state. And I, I think if you're worried about losing innovation, giving the money directly to cities is the way you do it. So it's more like we are reorienting to even things out by giving some money back to cities when it's so much of it has gone to rural areas in the past. Well, what you're, what you're doing, I mean, the Transportation Empowerment Act, what it would do is it would phase out federal money over five years. So, you know, the gas tax would, would go from the 18.3 cents, I think it is right now, down to 3.7. Yeah. And it would phase out over five years. But all the federal government would need would be the 3.7 because uh, they're only going inter- to maintain the interstates now. They're not going to do all the other, you know, funding new frontage roads and new interchanges. And you're not going to do any of that. They're just going to maintain the interstates. So the idea is, okay, you've got this extra money. What do you do with it? And the act says, we're going to block grant that right back to the states. And I'm saying, instead of block granting that all to the states, let's block grant part of it to the states and let's block grant it part of it to cities. Yeah. The cities are, you know, to, to me, as part of doing a transition like this, you really want to seed a certain level of innovation. And, and that's not likely to happen at the state DOT level. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of conversation in response to the stuff you posted last week. Are there any comments that jump out that sparked interesting discussion that you want to talk about further? Um, I, I think along this lines, there, there's a couple of things that I just kind of shook my head on over the weekend because on, on Facebook, particularly, we had some people that were one guy attacked me for uh, writing conservative talking points. And then someone else got on my case for being like a liberal shill, uh, you know, like a liberal utopian. And I thought, OK, that's how we knew we we're doing our job right. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, OK, I, I did it right there. OK, that worked out. Um, I also just think, you know, we live in these kind of interesting hyper partisan times where 
you know, if you, uh, if, if, in fact, this week, one of the posts that I want to write is uh, going to be along the lines of is strong towns, my tribe. We, hmm. we had this discussion uh, last year and then I, I think I've been having it. I know I've been having it with one of our board members, but I, I think you and I may have talked about it too. When people come to our website, particularly, you know, people who uh, align with a political party, they oftentimes will go to like our mission page or our, uh, you know, uh, who are these people? And they'll look for their own political buzzwords. You know, do, do you have the, the things that signal to me that you're a safe organization? Because, you know, the last thing you want as a kind of partisan person is to share something from a site and then have one of your friends come back and say, well, hey, you know, do you know they're, you know, this, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the opposite of what you want to be. And for us, we, we really don't fit into the, one of the partisan boxes that we have. I mean, we're, we're very, we're a very strange organization that way. And I think particularly when you have these hyper-polarized, uh, you know, election seasons and then political conversations like we seem to are going to have here on an ongoing basis, at least for a while. People look for those signals. And I, I want to talk about that directly uh, because I want people to understand that they're not going to find those signals here. And it's not because we like intentionally go about avoiding them. It's just not the language we use. And I, I, I want to, I, I guess I want to create like a, I don't want to create a bridge to partisan hacks because I, I don't think partisan hacks maybe are, I won't say you're not welcome in our movement, but they're, we're not going to be co-opted by partisan hacks. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, but I, I want people who are, you know, in that realm of, hey, I'm, I'm nervous about what I'm sharing because I, I don't want you guys to come. You know, I'm a, I'm a left-wing progressive and I'm worried that if I share your stuff, there's going to be some like right-wing thing in here that's going to flip, you know, freak my friends out. Or I'm a right-wing, uh, you know, conservative. I'm worried that if I share your stuff, you're going to post some, you know, liberal utopian thing that I'm not going to be able to defend. I want to, I want to, I want to clear that up for people so that at least they know, you know, what to expect from us. That seems appropriate, especially given how partisan things are right now. Yeah. Uh, I want to take a minute to welcome our newest members, and we haven't done this in a couple weeks because we were taking a break, so um, we've got a nice list of people who joined us over the break. William Emoti, uh, E. Glenn Gilbert, Dave Anderson, Michael Braley, Ryan O'Hara, Padriac Steinschneider, Michael Lintzfair, Nicholas Kokonos, Jerry O'Brien, Lisa Kvass, and Arville White. Welcome, all of you guys, and thanks so much for being members of Strong Towns. Patty Steinschneider. He's you know a, her? oh my, I yeah. know him. He is a, he is a wonderful man. I mean, I, I, I love the guy. He is a, he's one cool. of these guys who you just like, I see him and I want to give him a hug. Um, he's just a, he's just a jolly, friendly, nice, thoughtful man. So yeah, I'm very honored by the fact that he would sign up and, and join us. So thanks Patty. Yeah. And thanks everyone. Thanks, everyone. So, Chuck, I wanted to mention that I finally got Hillbilly Elegy from the library. I had to wait a couple weeks for yes. everybody else who was in front of me in line. But I've started it, and uh, I don't know. I have, I have mixed thoughts on it because 
I mean, I guess I was biased because I thought everyone loved it, so I was going to love it too. And I think I like it. Love but, it, though. Yeah. Well, it's, okay. Love it. I'm I mean, enjoying it, but okay. I guess I didn't realize that it was going to be 100% memoir. I thought it would be a little bit more um, information about like the whole you know, landscape where he grew up and the, you know, statistics about demographics and things like that. And I guess it's a little bit more like personal narrative than I thought it was going to be, which isn't bad. It's just a surprise uh, me, I guess. It's, it's I funny because fully dive into it. This is the person who, this is from the person who told me that I have to read between the world and me. Right? <laughs> You're right. I think it's just about my expectations. I thought it was going to be this like sweeping book that would like tell me everything I need to know about rural America or something. And it's no. much more, micro than that. Yeah. Still interesting though. It's the, uh, in, in some ways it's like the white guy analog to, in the world and me. I mean, I, I, I wrote about this a little bit at the end of the year and, uh, with my book recommendations and everything, and then had some interesting conversations with people uh, about that. Uh, because like I've said here before, you know, I struggled with between the world and me thought the, the new Jim Crow was fantastic. You kind of chalk that up to me being an engineer and, and I agree, except I found hillbilly elegy fascinating. And I think, you know, for me, one of the reasons I found it fascinating is because I could relate to it. You know, it was, it, it rhymed with like the world around me and my experiences in a way that between the world and me just seemed really out there. Uh, That makes sense. I since heard an, an interview um, from Taishi Coates that was in it, he talked about the book. They asked him about the book and he said, I did not. He said like he was shocked that, uh, that it's as popular as it's been. He did not intend it to be like for a general audience. Um, and it, 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 his explanation of it made me feel a little bit better about me not getting it as much. Um, but yeah, Hillbilly Elegy, um, not like the feel good book of the year, you know? <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> so what is, what has it, how far in are you? Has it struck you in any, like, I mean, besides the fact that it's not like a documentary, it is a memoir. Yeah. I'm only, I don't know, maybe a third of the way through. So, uh, I'm still like, he's still definitely a child. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that it speeds up a little bit soon, but I guess he was only 30 when he wrote the book. So it doesn't have that much farther to go in, in terms of his life. Um, I think the thing that's been most intriguing to me is how he's talked about how his grandparents are hardcore Democrats. Like, um, I always assumed that everyone living in rural areas, I mean, not everyone, but certainly the way that this book was pitched, I I thought that his whole life would be like very conservative. And it it certainly seems like there's a lot of family members who are conservative and he's mentions like conservative Christian, um, kind of that part of his life. But yeah, I was I was surprised by that. See, I'm, I, of the story. I, I I was not. My my grandparents were like staunch DFLers, Democrat Farm Labor here in Minnesota. Okay. And I mean, to the point where my grandpa, I mean, he like pound his fists on the table and say, "You cannot vote for a Republican, young man." You know, <laughs> I, I, he's like, "I would have died without FDR. F, you know, I would be dead if it were not for FDR." I remember him distinctly saying that to me, and I I remember thinking. That's really strange, but you know, you were there during the depression. I wasn't. Yeah. Well, um, that's true. FDR is a, is an important figure, but my grandfather, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother, but I can, you know, my grandfather in particular, um, my grandma was not like a real opinionated political person. My, my grandfather was, 
um, you did not get more conservative than, than him, you know? And I, I really think this is, you know, this is the big change that our parties have really gone through in the, their purification process. Because, you know, growing up, I knew lots of Democrats. I mean, I live in a very conservative area. Uh, everybody here, not everybody down to the last person, but I mean, the broad general consensus is that people are fairly conservative. That meant you could be a conservative Democrat or you could be a conservative Republican. Um, either way, you were going to be conservative. Um, the Republicans then, you know, we had down in the Twin Cities metro area, uh, we had a lot of liberal Republicans along with liberal Democrats. And, and you know, a lot of our um, legislative battles were four-way battles. I mean, they were battles between liberals and conservatives. They were battles between Republicans and Democrats. They were battles between urban and rural. And you had these like four different factions you know, that, that kind of, you know, vied off against each other in a way. And our parties have just like purified themselves. They've simplified that down to just, you know, Republican, conservative, Democrat, liberal. And, and I, I think you see that the younger you get, because there's, you know, like for my grandparents, it was very natural for them to be conservative and Democrat in a way that I think younger people today just, you know, have a really hard time with. Yeah, in the major parties, there's also a lack of distinction between like socially liberal versus fiscally conservative, you know, and and vice versa. And maybe that's more present because it seems like from the book, you know, their family life is still pretty like socially conservative. Um, and some issues, you know, that I affiliate with conservatives like gun control. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of guns in this family, um, but you know, they might be fiscally liberal. Um, even if they're socially conservative. Yeah, but this is the, I mean, this is the fascinating thing about hillbilly elegy. And I, I think it, it exposes a lot of the struggles in rural areas, the struggles that I, I've seen and experienced. I mean, you have a family who is, you know, conservative family values, yet, you know, strung out on drugs and mom has multiple boyfriends and, yeah, you know, new guys coming through the house all the time and certainly not like stable two parent families. Um, you know, they, 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 I would not vote for someone I'm, I'm paraphrasing them now, you know, I would not vote for someone who's not a you know Christian, but then like never go to church, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's that whole, paradoxes. I, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of paradoxes that, that come out in this book and they're very real. Um, and I think, you know, I guess the thing that I like about it, and and this is why I keep going back to between the world and me and and drawing these analogies because I I struggle and I I still, I think I'm going to go back a third time to between the world and me and just try, (laughs) try to see it through a different set of eyes. Because when I read, when I read Hillbilly Elegy, um, to me, it laid bare those, um, those paradoxes and, you know, urban areas, if we want to call the elites, you know, that, that, uh, in our popular vernacular kind of laugh at rural areas for these paradoxes. There's a lot of paradoxes in urban areas as well. But, um, I love how this book kind of, you know, in a real world way exposes them not to jeer at them, but to say like, this is the world I lived in and it was messed up. Um, but here's what I had to deal with. And here's what a lot of people have to deal with. Yeah. Um, have you been reading anything else interesting in the last week or listening to cool podcasts? Um, 
you know, I did so much writing last week that my, my reading was down a little bit. I did finish The Content Trap, which is a book that I've been working on for a couple of weeks. And man, do I, do I have like tons of ideas. Um, yeah, I'm waiting to get that one from the library. I'm oh, excited yeah. for that. Yeah. So um, I, I, I've been reading this Road to Ruin by Jim Rickards, and I, I mentioned it last week. It's okay. <laughs> when I read, I tend to read like before I go to bed. And if I have a book, like a, like a hardcover or a paperback, I can't sit in bed and read uh, because like I don't turn the light on and keep my wife up. I've got a Kindle and I can read that on like really low light and it's kind of like wife friendly, you know, it's polite. <laughs> so, um, so I, uh, I, I have not been reading that book at night because I got it as a Christmas gift and it's a hardcover. So I've been reading it like during the day. This weekend, I read a chapter explaining derivatives and why derivatives are going to blow up the world. And I had understood this before in like a vague sense. Now I understand it like in a more deep sense and I'm totally freaked out. So <laughs> that, was, um, that was something I picked up over the weekend and I, I feel like I need to write about it, but I don't know when. Uh, okay, check. But I'm still digesting it. Yeah. Really dumb question. Um, what do you, what is the derivative? Let's say that you, uh, are going to, um, sell a product overseas and you're going to, uh, finance it here in the U S. So you, you're, you're in Italy and you buy, uh, in, you know, a piece of equipment from America and you finance it with dollars. Well, you have currency risk now. Because if the, you know, you've got to pay back a certain amount, but what happens if the euro drops or the euro, uh, you know, drops in value? Well, now you're going to have to pay back more in euros than what you had originally uh, said. So what, what you will do is you will buy uh, a derivative that essentially, you know, if the euro drops, it will pay you uh, the, you know, the difference. And so you basically hedge your risk, Right. Um, the problem is, is that someone takes the other side of that bet then. So you, you, you know, buy this contract and then if the, um, you know, if the Euro does drop, uh, then, you know, someone is going to have to pay you that difference. Someone now has that currency risk. What will happen then is that like a, a bank will have that currency risk. What they will do is they will turn around and buy like an opposite hedge to that. So they will buy something that, you know, insures them. And it winds up to be this big kind of daisy chain of people owning swaps, uh, derivatives contracts that uh, hedge their risks. So in a sense, if you're the bank, you have zero risk because, you know, I've got you that's going to pay me. Um, and then if the currency drops, uh, we've got insurance. And so I'm, I'm all perfectly covered, like everything's fine. The, the problem runs into is if someone in that chain fails. Like if, if a bank fails, right? Because now what you have is you have the bank holding all these contracts saying, we will pay you in case of this event. And then it's like going to your insurance company when your house burns down and finding out that, you know, your insurance company has actually located all their uh, wealth in your basement and it burned down with your house. So it, your insurance really doesn't do you any good. That That is the essence of like, the risk of a derivatives contract 
And the problem is that banks um, are able to say, like, we have no risk because they're hedged, because they have these uh, contracts, these swap contracts out. But it's but re- a lie. Oh, not only, I mean, it's not a lie like on paper. And this is kind of the, I've heard Nassim Taleb talk a lot about this, and I've not really understood it. Uh, because he would say, you know, value at risk. Basically, if you're a bank, you have no value at risk because you've loaned this stuff out, but you've got insurance on the other side. So if the loan goes bad or the insur- you know, the currency drops or what have you, you're insured. And so you've got no value at risk. And so you don't have to have like a buffer. You don't have to have money saved, uh, you know, in, in case you, in, you know, so you can be solvent. Um, the reality is you have like massive amounts at risk because if people start to fail and you can't get paid on that insurance, um, you know, you might have, you might have trillions at risk. And so it, it, it is a way that we have created these huge cascading, uh, you know, mounds of risk, but written them on the books as having no risk. And, you know, this is where you get systematically too big to fail banks. You know, if, if, the, if a too big to fail bank goes down and they can't cover uh, their swaps, that cascades through the system and everybody, um, you know, runs for the exits because uh, the last one kind of holding the bag is going to get stuck with all these contracts and be done. I can see why that is a disturbing concept. Yeah. I didn't do it justice there, but, you know, I think at some point I've got to uh, sit down and, and type this up because it's it's really important. I, I'm uh, I, I am like a self-taught finance person, which means I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be like indoctrinated. And that puts me in this weird spot where I'm I'm not comfortable with a lot of things that I think professionals are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um and that's both good and bad. I mean, I, I, I think that there's got to be a, a level of healthy skepticism. Um, but, it, it, you know, from my vantage point, it's very strange because you have people who I think are very smart, like Nassim Taleb and, uh, you know, Jim Rickards, who I'm you know, reading his book now. It, it, on one side of the equation, and then on the other side, you have people like, you know, Ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan and Larry Summers and, you know, Janet Yellen who believe in these models and I'm just, you know, from my own profession, the engineering profession, I've developed this healthy skepticism of the people on the top who believe in the models, you know? Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, we should uh, close out for today, but do we have a new podcast coming up on Thursday? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> we had oh, we had one scheduled up. that got canceled, but I'm gonna. Um, I mean, I have two that I want to do. It's just a matter of finding time. So let, let's okay. say this: Yes, we will. Cross I don't know. Fingers. I don't know which one it will be yet, but it will be one of. I'm either gonna go through and and finish up um, these questions that people sent in. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I still have like a long list of them I didn't get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also. Um, I also would like to talk a little bit about some of this infrastructure crisis stuff. And I've got some quotes I'd like to share and uh, some audio clips I'd like to share. So we'll see where it goes. Awesome. All right, everyone, take care and have a great week.
We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.